Thank you for listening to Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan King. Radio Never Part is a monthly interview feature, which we started at the beginning of 2020, available as part of the online Never Apart magazine. Never Apart is a non-profit organization started in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, with the mission of initiating social change and spiritual awareness through cultural programming. Due to the current COVID-19 pandemic, Never Apart's physical gallery spaces are not open to the public. For the most up-to-date information, as well as to see what's happening with upcoming exhibitions, check out neverapart.com. There's tons of other great content there as well, including in-person interviews with artists who've shown in the past and some virtual exhibitions that are being hosted there temporarily while the physical gallery spaces are not open to the public. The focus of our 2020 podcast season is to speak with both LGBTQ pioneers as well as allies of the community about their lives and experiences as performers, artists, and collaborators who helped shape expressive creative worlds in nightlife. That was sort of where we chose to begin with the podcast, Um, although we will be expanding in the coming months and also uh, adding additional uh, podcast interviews each month. My guest on this episode is a New Yorker who really is so incredible that the word fierce doesn't even truly do her justice. Lauren Pine has been involved in multiple scenes in New York in the last 30 years, uh, from the boy bar circle. Uh, Boy bar was a East Village uh, nightclub that was opened by Matthew Caston in the mid-1980s and launched the career of some incredible performers and legends in nightlife. And we speak a little bit about that in this episode. Lauren also worked at... Patricia Fields, which was a boutique on 8th Street, close to Washington Square Park in New York. Um, It was a fashion mecca for a certain set of the downtown New York nightlife community and had an incredible makeup counter, which Lauren worked at for a period of time, as well as a famous wig and hair salon. Lauren ran in some pretty incredible circles. She counts as close friends, Scott Ewalt, who's an artist living and working in New York, doing graphic art, Guy Furrow, who's a musician, member of the punk band The Toilet Boys, and who will be a subject of an upcoming podcast interview, and Stephen Perfidia Kirkham, who's a wig stylist, Uh, and all of those folks have been friends since high school uh, when they moved to New York from California, all at a very close period of time. So she talks a little bit about that in our interview. Lauren did also suffer a bike accident in 2017 that was quite significant. Um, And she's recovered from it with such incredible um, courage and grace. She speaks a little bit about it in the interview. So just know that it's something that we mentioned and it was a pretty major event, but there's 
definitely lightness in the way that Lauren has chosen to live her life since that time. Hello, are you there, Miss Lauren Pine? Of course, I'm excited about it. So I've known about you for a very long time through a number of amazing, legendary New Yorkers, and I had just kind of known about your your aura and your presence at the Pat Fields makeup counter at a certain point in time. But what should we know about you? <laughs> well, to go back where it all began, uh, my name is Lauren Pine, and I came to New York with Guy Furrow in October of 1985 on the coattails of Scott Ewalt and Perfidia, Stephen Kirkham. Um, Scott was at Princeton, and Perfidia came just to move here and enjoy the creativity and beauty that downtown New York had to offer. And so we had them to guide us when we got off the, uh, out of the taxi on Bleecker and Sixth underneath John's Pizzeria. We were right up, uh, the video was about John's Pizzeria living with Gia Jupiter. Oh my gosh, and amazing, of course, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about on Bleecker Street. Yeah, so we got out there, went in, had some dinner, put on our faces, and walked to Boy Bar on a Thursday night. Wow. Walked in, met Connie, um, and some other people, and I was extremely intimidated just watching everybody dance in ways that I thought, oh my God, there's such good dancers, I can't do this, but I don't want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I got a job the next day at Andy's Cheapy's Vintage Clothing, which is right across the street from Record Factory where Perfidia worked. We could literally look out the doorway at each other, but then the whips would crack and we had to get back to work. You had to work straight through, I think, eight or nine hours. You got paid cash. And um, then you could go home, have some dinner, relax, paint your face, and go out all night. And do it all over again. And so you were all a little, you were all a cohort from California. You'd all known each other from from Southern California, I understand. San Diego. Mm -hmm. And there was one small independent club there that was gay-friendly and owned by a wonderful person named Kelsey. Kelsey Ferris, called Club Zoo, Z-U, and that was our uh, first intro to finding people like us and um, just being ignited by the originality and creativity. And it was sort of the the new, it was like the new wave era, it was sort of the Boy George era, it was right around that time. And and it was not called goth then, but it was, uh, you know, there was some goth happening too. Huh. which was punk at the time. Yeah. So you... to New York, but I didn't know I was moving. I thought I was just going for um, two months if I could get a job and two weeks if I couldn't and then going back home. But I, once I got there and settled in, I decided that I was staying. So that was great for me to feel like I finally found where I belonged and that I could support myself there because things were so inexpensive. You could get a room or a share or an SR room very cheaply. Um, so many artists could afford art supplies and doing their art most of the time and then just have a part-time job. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's an... Being downtown, you could get a job looking pretty much however you wanted at certain places. But right. it was also very tricky. Um, I was fortunate enough after I quit a vintage clothing store, which I knew I couldn't take anymore, uh, through uh, Stephen Kirk of Perfidia's boyfriend at the time, Joey Napierkowski, who worked at Patricia Fields, which whenever I went in, I thought, oh my God, I know this is cooler than what I can realize, but I didn't understand the subtleness of the style and fashion there. I liked things that were really colorful and outrageous. Um, and everyone was pretty low-key at paths. But I went in, I somehow got the job at the makeup counter that was supposed to be temporary but ended up being full-time. I was a horrible salesperson, but I loved makeup, and I piled it on, and they had the best, most creative colors that no one else had. And they had German theatrical makeup from Krylon. Um, we used to use Thermacolor. Yeah. And it was... Um, literally like clay <laughs> we would just pretty much trowel it on and completely change we were more sculptures than paintings <laughs> and there was no contouring happening back then I would call that era BC before contour <laughs> Oh my gosh. And you named some of the other brands and they really, you really took me back. Like Barry M. Was that another one? Yes. Stargazer. Yes. Um, oh my gosh. We even had Biba. We had some yep. Biba eyeshadow and lipstick. But anyway, back to New York. I was there from 85 to 88. And um, it was magical. It was really, I mean, it changed me as a person. It certainly gave me a much wider perspective of art and culture and style and fashion that I never would have had otherwise. Music, oh my God, it was really such a, a great environment. Um, we weren't the only ones enjoying it. The customers enjoyed it too. Everyone came in. It was almost like a daytime club sometimes in there. I got to experience a little glimmer of it. I mean, the first time I went to New York was in the year 2000. And the very first place that we like immediately, immediately set out to go to was, was Pat Beals to the store on 8th Street. The downstairs was where all the makeup was and Amanda Lepore was working at the makeup counter and upstairs was more of the clothes. The hair salon was in the back still. So it was a bit of a holdover from, you know, I think from how it had been sort of through the 90s. Um, sure. But it, I mean, it was like a Mecca for us. You know, it was a real sort of cultural hub there, right? I mean, a lot of different people worked there. Yeah, and everybody did everything face-to-face. There was no internet, which is hard to imagine. But you really had to go places to see them and experience them. And the nightclub scene was just, like, on a whole other level during that time. Like It was. I mean, we definitely arrived at the tail end of when it was truly amazing. But it still had its definite highlights and um, it was after the big, you know, economic upturn in the mid to late 80s. So a lot of people wanted to go to nightclubs so they could be bigger and still have a VIP room mm-hmm. where locals could get in for free and drink for free and enjoy performances by people that they mostly knew, um, go to art openings by people they mostly knew. Um, there was just a lot more creativity and contribution to the culture. Mm-hmm. Now it's all, uh, 
you know, entertain me, I'm paying, entertain me. Yeah. Whereas before it was more everybody from every economic background having a great time in one room. Yeah, it sounds like it was like participatory almost, and really people were bringing something when they were yeah. going out and yeah, with what they were. Unless you looked a certain way, um, which isn't to say you had to have a lot of money or be looking amazing. You just had to be yourself and have an interesting character that they could spot from yeah. the door and just let you in. Yeah. So there would be kids from the neighborhood that had grown up there and there would be transplants like me and um, everything in between, artists, celebrities, wonderful photographers. What were some of the clubs that you frequented back then during that time? Well, I wouldn't have known where to go, but thankfully um, Scott and Perfidia knew to go to dance. Ethereum, I'm White, Palladium, the Michael Todd room, and, you know, the Kenny Sharp room and stuff. And um, Pyramid, Boy Bar was always my favorite. The first place I went, the place I felt most at home, and I loved the shows. Mm-hmm. And once I got to know Matthew, and Guy started performing, and I could go in the dressing room and hang out, I was happy as a clam. That was really cool. my favorite thing. Out of that scene came some really pretty phenomenal and very legendary performers. Um, you know, which had in a sort of very diluted way, I guess, but had, you know, an influence on me sort of, you know, during the, the earliest phase of my time going out to clubs because I had met Candace Kane in Vancouver and, you know, I'd go to the library, take out these books and I just knew about a lot of these, you know, really famous queens and performers and almost, well, a good majority of them had come through the boy bar world. So international yeah. crisis and... Yeah, and uh, and yeah, Candace Kane and Connie Fleming, and yeah, it was quite a cohort. I went to LA because I was going to open a store with Pat, which is hilarious now that I look back on it because I was completely unprepared. But I did at least realize that once I got out there, I didn't want to commit to staying there, and I told her. And I ended up staying out there just because my family was nearby, and that made it worth it. But I was happy to come back to New York in '93, and that's when I met Candace. And uh, Nishan on the foot, and um, some of the newer queens. And I did miss 88 through 93, but I came back for at least a month every year of those five years. So I had my foot in the door the whole time. Yeah. But certainly there was a, a real explosion of drag shows between that 88 to 93 period that I missed a lot of. Yeah. I, I remember seeing a postcard that I think was a picture of you in a corset or maybe I realized afterwards that it was your silhouette in a corset that was an advertisement Uh for Pat Fields or something. It was with Michael Schmidt and Martine, the painter. Michael brought home a Skin 2 magazine and it had a high heel on it and I looked up all the sources and it was from the little shoebox and I had seen that Trash and Bobdale had one shoe from them but it wasn't a leather it was a plastic pool, and I thought, ew, I don't know if I want that. Um, but I ordered a pair anyway, and then I saw the corsets, so I thought, oh my god, I want to get into that. But I didn't do that right away, but I saw where I could order from VR Creations out in California. Then we moved to L.A., Michael and Guy and I, in March of 88, 
And in June, Guy flew back to be on the boy bar float for the Pride Parade and stayed. He never came back to L.A. that faster. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael was there, and Michael was right across the street from me before I moved to another place there. And um, I ordered a corset, and I started wearing them. I wore them full-time, and I started waist training. I got a training belt. And um, I didn't know anyone else doing it except one other woman in L.A., and somebody else that was like in another state because they had a little newsletter that they put out. I would look at it and think, okay, I've got to get taller. <laughs> it was sort of like a fetish thing, you know, for yeah, a really, really I long time. There's a difference between corsetry is just wearing something that brings your waist in, but tight lacing is an extreme. And tight lacing was not considered normal back in Victorian times, it was considered too extreme. Yeah. There was a, you know, a middle of the road that was the preferred figure. You had to be proper. Back then, you had to fly to London and make your own shoe if you wanted anything remotely fetishy. Yeah. And, and so I was the... short and not thin, so for me, I thought, well, I have to have the longest lashes and the highest heels. And I don't care what happens beyond that, but that'll make me happy. And I loved the way it looked and felt, and it made me feel complete. And I, I you know, I, I wish I would have had better skills at doing my hair, but uh, you can't do everything. So anyway, yeah, I moved to LA for a bit. I started cranking on the waist. I came back. Right before I came back, Guy put me in touch with Pearl and said, my friend makes corsets, but he wants to know where you get yours because he, has, he wants to have someone make one for him that's, you know, a tight lacing one. And yeah. Suzanne Barsh is tiny, so he did do technically tight lacing mm-hmm. for her, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite as extreme. It just looks major on her because she's so teeny anyway. Mm-hmm. So he had been doing corsets long before this. I know that. I don't, I'm not making any claims. But tight lacing, tight lacing corsets, he got one from be our creations and then I think a couple other people did too hmm. so that's when he started training and I already was and when I came back to visit I went and saw him at his atelier and a little studio I can't even remember where it was anyway that was right before he went back to London so of course by the time I was back here he was back in London hmm. but we kept in touch and he used that pattern to start making his own more tight lacing corsets uh, Pearl certainly made some amazing corsets and continues to for Dita Von Teese and um, officially Mosh and some of those wonderful burlesque stars. Yeah, I mean, he's he's sort of like just the ultimate. He's really, you know, gone. Yeah. You know, Jeroen Vanderklees is also amazing. I have to give a shout out. Jeroen mm-hmm. Vanderklees is, I think, is the hourglass shape that I love. Mm-hmm. There, everyone their own. Pearl makes an amazing corset. Dean Sonnenberg, who works for Vera Wang, makes an amazing corset, and she came up to me at a book release party for Valerie Steele, who's very prominent at FIT, and she had, this was back in, I think, 93, uh, put out a book on corsetry, and she interviewed Scott, she interviewed me, and Dean was just starting to make his own courses. And he beelined it for me at the party and said, oh, I really want to learn how to make courses. And I said, okay, I've had so many people say that, and then I give them the info and they don't do anything. Are you really serious? And he said, yes. And I could tell he was. Mm-hmm. So I gave him every resource I had. Two of, two of them are no longer living. 
Iris Norris, who made corsets for uh, Ethel Granger, and Michael Garrod, who from True Grace. He was an amazing corsetier, too. He lost an, a great one when he passed away from cancer. Ugh. Iris was elderly, and I had one made by her, but her eyesight was poor, and she told me as much. And it came out just a little skewed, but I love it. I have one from her, and I have two from Michael Garrett, actually three. He used to make this heavy-grade latex one, hmm. and it was amazing, and it lasted. It didn't oxidize. It was, it was insane. Scott has been my portal to everything amazing in life. Really, he has. He's made the magic happen in my life by opening doors for me that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. And introducing me to people. And Scott will give you the best PR ever. I mean, oh my God, he will make you sound like the most amazing thing. I, I feel like when I walk in the room, people are like, that homely thing? <laughs> Anyways, Perfidia 2 is just a visionary. They're visionary. Everyone from Pyramid, a visionary. The Boy Bar Queens, the Boy Bar, you know, Matthew Caston, Glenn Whitney. I, you know, Taboo, Sister Dimension, Lady Bunny. Yeah. Um, I just, I mean, Paula, the Swedish housewife, you know, she just, they all were there for a reason. They all have become amazing parts of our community even now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, creative, like speaking of creative, Michael Schmidt this morning was talking about how he can use a 3D printer to make amazing medical advances for how to MacGyver things medically now that we're short of equipment yeah. and he makes things for Beyonce yeah. I mean if people at that time were only beginning mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I remember thinking oh we're getting too old none of us are famous it happens much later in life than people realize yeah yeah for sure it really does life gets better I think it really does not always but for some of us and the ones that are still here and we're, we're lucky to be here I am glad that I've been able to see how everyone has grown and evolved and mended burnt bridges and just it's it is very uplifting. Even in the face of the COVID nineteen pandemic, people are not allowing it to slow them down. They're if anything even more motivated to do great things. Yeah. When it's hard. I feel like I've sought everyone out in my life. When I lost my leg at the hip I was hit by one of those big ten wheels trucks when I was crossing the crosswalk on my bike. I got hit and dragged and thank God for the angel on the side of the street that stopped the truck. Somehow I survived that. I remember waking up in the hospital after being in a coma for three days so that they could do all the surgeries and keep me on the ventilator. And when I was coming out of that haze a couple of days later and there were a bunch of people in my room, I said, I bet none of you knew it, but I picked you all for this moment in my life. And they all laughed. Well, you have quite an indomitable spirit, I really have to say, because I've only known about you since I've lived in New York in the last few years, um, and your accident happened within probably six months of when I moved to New York. But I mean, truly know that people speak so highly of you and everything that people have to say about how you recovered from that accident um, is really, it's said with such regard and such love and such respect. Um, and just like admiration for how you've how you've uh, gone on to to like recover and to be here talking to me right now and telling me incredible stories. Well, thank you. 
I say it's all of all of us. Like we all reflect the best of each other back at each other when it really counts. Yeah. And that is what allowed me to cope and to make it through and to continue to live and continue to want to live. Mm-hmm. I used to think I didn't want to live sometimes, not that I would have ever taken my own life, but I wasn't appreciative, even though I knew that that was the goal, to be in the moment and appreciate the small things. I wasn't able to do it, and I was frustrated by that. Mm -hmm. And I've learned now more, not saying that I know a lot or anything, or that I'm enlightened, but I'm certainly more content, which is weird, but Mm -hmm. it's true. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Radio Never Apart. I hope you enjoyed listening to my chat with Lauren Pine as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. In the next episode, that's part of this month's magazine, I'm speaking with Guy Furrow, who's a very close friend of Lauren's. They moved here together from California at the same time. Uh, And he speaks about his early days in New York as part of the boy bar scene as well. So I think it pairs nicely with this interview and I hope you enjoy them both. Uh, I also need to send a huge thank you to Jack Fox, who's done all the sound editing for this episode, and for DJ Dickie Dew, my longtime friend from our days in Vancouver, who is now living in Berlin and put together the, uh, the new theme music that we've had since last month. And as always, a huge thank you to Never Apart for their support of us putting out these podcast episodes. I hope you enjoy, and we look forward to having you back next month.